guys. Great to see you all here once again. Uh, it's been just a, an interesting couple weeks here as we continue our study through the book of Joshua, verse by verse. Um, it's fun to see as we go through the Old Testament just the, the relevance it still has for us here today, living in the New Testament age, um, waiting on the return of Christ. And so tonight in Joshua, we're going to pick up in chapter 10. Uh, so we find the people of Israel uh, kind of really getting into the conquest of the promised land for real now. Uh, they, they've kind of eased into it before. We see God lead them out of, out of the wilderness, commission Joshua as the new leader to take over from Moses. He parts the Jordan River, gives them victory at Jericho. We've seen uh, their failure to conquer Ai initially because of the disobedience of one man. Uh, we see God redeem that and give them victory in that same situation. And uh, last week in chapter 9, we saw the people of Israel deceived by the Gibeonites. Uh, so the people of Gibeon approached Joshua, made up this elaborate ruse to trick the leaders of Israel into thinking that they were from some other place far away into making a treaty, an alliance with them, uh, so that they would not uh, conquer them, take their city, and kill their people. And so in chapter 9, uh, their, their ruse is found out, their deception comes to be known, and we see God redeem that in some ways too, that we see the Gibeonites be sentenced to serving the people of Israel, specifically in the service of the temple because of this agreement that they made with the nation of Israel. Uh, so God was still able to use that in order to bring glory to himself. Tonight, we're going to see the Gibeonites run into a little bit of trouble because of this deal they made with the people of Israel. And we're going to see God work through this situation as well to continue to fulfill his promises and to bring himself glory. Uh, there's a phrase that we're going to see repeated several times in this chapter. This is God speaking to Joshua and to the people of Israel. And it says that God has given them into your hand. And we're going to see through this, um, as we've seen before, that God is the one who brings victory. God is the one who delivers the enemies of the Israelites over to them, who enables them to conquer and to take this land. This is all because of God. And so our theme for this evening is that God fights for his people. And so we're going to see how God fights on behalf of the nation of Israel in here. We're also going to consider what that looks like for us today, how it is that God still fights for us, for those who love and serve him on their behalf. So that's our focus point this evening. God fights for his people. Uh, so let's get started. Joshua chapter 10, we'll go ahead and start in verse 1. It says, As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly. Because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than I, and all its men were warriors. 
So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. So in these verses here, we see the news of Israel's victory in battle continuing to spread. Uh, that The fear of them, as God had told them what happened, was growing and spreading throughout the land of Canaan. Uh, these people had heard about the mighty miracles, the victories God had given them in their wanderings in the wilderness. They had heard about how God had miraculously parted the Jordan River, enabling them to enter into the promised land. How God had taken down the walls of Jericho that they might capture it. How God had given them victory over Isaac how nothing was able to stop these people when their God fought for them. And they had heard how the people of Gibeon realized that and decided instead of fighting against it that they would ally themselves with Israel through deception and trickery, albeit. And so these other Canaanite kings, the rulers of these different city-states that were scattered throughout the area, decided that they should ally together to go oppose the people of Gibeon, who are now allied with Israel. So the people of Gibeon, because of the alliance they made with the people of God, were seeing opposition from the people that they had once been allied with, that they had turned their back in many ways on the rest of the Canaanites and associated themselves with Israel and with their God. And so this brought trouble for them because of that. Uh, as we think about Israel going in and conquering the land of Canaan, uh, we're going to see a lot of these different cities referenced in this section and later on in the chapter as well. And uh, it's important to think about just what that all looked like with the geography, with the terrain. Um, that There were all these different fortified cities scattered throughout the land. Uh, they were all, for the most part, ruled by separate independent kings um, and that these cities were kind of stationed in key areas to control different farmlands or grazing areas, different passes through the mountains. So they're strategically set to be able to control different parts of the land. So that's why it was so important for the people of Israel to go in and to conquer these cities, that they had to see what was going on here and to go in and to be able to, to really take these strategic areas to be able to um, have control over those areas. And we also note in this chapter that the king Adonai Zedek of Jerusalem here, this is again before Israel had conquered Jerusalem, so this is a, a pagan city, that he was motivated by fear. He saw what God was doing and he realized that he was standing in opposition to God and he was afraid. Uh, it's an interesting response to see for those of us who follow Christ, that we can see the work God does and we can have hope and have peace because of what God is doing, because we know that we are on God's side. But for those who stand in opposition to God, they see his power, they see his might, they see his glory, and they are rightly brought to fear when they stand in opposition to God. It's also interesting to note 
that these five different city-states were brought together. They were united to oppose the people of God and the work of God. Um, that when God is working, when God's people are walking in obedience, that sometimes that obedience can unite their enemies, can bring extra resolve to those who are committed to walking in darkness and in evil. Uh, that they came together with that common theme in order to fight against the people of Israel. And so these five kings gather their armies, they march against Gibeon, the people who are allied with Israel, and come to make war with them. Verse 6, And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon, and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. So the people of Gibeon are in this situation. They're surrounded by their former allies. Uh, they're faced with a problem here that five other cities have ganged up against them to oppose them because they have allied themselves with Israel. And they have also essentially given Israel control over this key area, um, the control over this area that was going to help them gain the rest of the land. And so the Gibeonites send to Joshua asking for help. Come quickly and save us and help us, they say in verse 6. For the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. Uh, so they realize this predicament and they decide it's time to make good on their treaty that they've made with the people of Israel. Uh, that Joshua had made this agreement with them that they would not kill them. They would spare them, but they had to serve the people of Israel. And that Israel, because of that, would also be bound to help protect them and to fight for them. I think the way Joshua handled this really is a great example of his integrity as a leader. Uh, that in this situation, this agreement was made under false pretenses. Uh, these people were very deceptive in bringing this about for their own good, not necessarily for the good of the people of Israel. That in spite of all that, Joshua is quick to respond, and he's quick to make good on the agreement uh, that would have been easy for him to look upon them and to try to return their deception in kind, to say that maybe they deserved this or they weren't worth defending because these were people who'd been brought into this state because of their own choices to lie and to deceive the nation of Israel. But instead of doing that, it says in verse 7 that Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. That Joshua was quick when this happened to mobilize their army and to begin marching towards Gibeon 
to engage with the enemy to save the Gibeonites as they had requested. And while we're in the midst of that, we see in verse 8 that God says to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Uh, So God reminds Joshua of this promise that he sees again and again. And in the specific case that God tells Joshua that he does not need to be afraid because God has given them over. God has already won this victory for the nation of Israel. That God has promised to follow through on this and to give Israel victory in battle. It's such a great contrast, I think, when we uh, consider verse 2. Uh, that Adonai Zedek, the king of Jerusalem, feared greatly because he knew he was on the wrong side of the battles that were happening. Joshua, on the other hand, is commanded to not fear, that he doesn't need to fear because he knows that he is on God's side and that God will be with him. They don't have to be afraid. In verse 9, it says that Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And so not only does Joshua make good on his promise, not only does Joshua have the ability to trust in God and to not fear because of God's promises, but Joshua and the men of Israel are also making the most of this opportunity. They are quick to keep their word and their promises to the people of Gibeon. They're also quick to trust in God and to act in faith on that promise. That they take their army, they march all night, it says, to reach Gibeon and to engage with them in battle earlier than they would expect. And this is a great example, I think, of faith being put into action. That God promised Joshua, commanded him even, not to be afraid because he was with him. And Joshua trusted God so much so that he acted on it and began immediately going in and preparing for this upcoming battle. That true faith requires action. And we see that from Joshua here. Um, We think about what faith really looks like. uh, That faith is a trust in something. That it requires placing trust in something and acting upon it. Um, We think about Jesus calling his disciples initially, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. That that required a choice and an action on the part of the disciples. That they chose to lay down their nets, to pick up, and to follow Jesus, not knowing exactly what it would lead to, not knowing the hardships and the difficulties they would face, but knowing who it was that was calling them and commanding them and trusting in him enough to step out and act upon that faith. I think uh, one of the the greatest illustrations I've seen of this, um, so I spent some time uh, a few years back working with a, a ministry doing a lot of outdoor trips with teens and college students and things like that, um, using uh, these experiences to kind of help share the gospel, to build up their faith, and to build relationships with people. And uh, I got to know a guy when I was working with this ministry, and his passion was ice climbing. This is kind of a a small group of people that are into this. Um, But uh, it's one of those things, you know, it's it's a lot of fun, but you don't tell your mom a lot about how it works. Um, 
So I was out with this guy on a trip, taking some people out ice climbing. And uh, when you're ice climbing, so you climb up, you've got your equipment, you climb up to the top of the ice, and then you've got to come down some way. But what do you tie your rope onto so you can rappel back down? And so they make what's called a V-thread anchor, that you have this sheer wall of ice, and then you take these screws that bore kind of a hole in the ice, and you bore two holes that meet at an angle, and then you thread a piece of cord through those holes, and that's what you hang off of and rappel back down. And it looks sketchy as all get out. I mean, there's basically this pillar of ice this big around that your life is hanging on. Uh, they've done a lot of tests. Engineers have calculated the you know, breaking load and strength on it, and usually you would make two of them just in case something happens. But to have faith in that anchor, you don't really trust in it. You don't really have true faith in this anchor you've made to rappel off of until you tie the rope onto it and sit back in your harness and let it take your weight and start going down. That faith requires putting trust in something in the same way, that you have to act on it, you have to step out and trust that God will be there, that God will sustain, that God will uphold you and not allow you to fall. Such a great illustration. I think the, the, the visual there was just stuck with everybody who was there on the trip. Uh, but Joshua was doing the same thing here, that he was acting in faith, that he wasn't just sitting back and waiting for God to fulfill this promise on his own, that he knew because God had given him this promise that he could step out and trust God and act. And so we see the Israelites march all night, engage in battle with this coalition of Canaanite kings, And it says in verse 10, The Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon, struck them, etc. Verse 11, it says, They fled before Israel, and while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. And so we see God promise Joshua the victory. We see Joshua step out in faith to act upon that. And we see God make good of this promise in a very dramatic way. That not only are the Canaanite armies panicked and struck down by the nation of Israel, but as they're defeated and they're chasing them back towards their cities down the valley, that God sends a hailstorm And it says that the hailstorm killed more of the Canaanites than the Israelites killed themselves. That there was no way they could attribute this victory to anyone other than God. And not only that, we'll see later on in this chapter that God killed more of the Canaanites with this hailstorm than the Israelites killed. But also that none of the Israelites were harmed by this same storm as they were chasing them down, pursuing and trying to finish off this army for good, that God performed this great miracle on behalf of the people of Israel, upholding his promise to Joshua in order to make it clear that he was the one who gave this victory, that no one could do this but God. So the people of Israel are chasing down the Canaanite army. God sends this hailstorm that helps to finish them off. And then it says in verse 12, At that time Joshua spoke to the Lord 
in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ijalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. And there has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man. For the Lord thought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. Right there in verse 12, I think, is an interesting verse to note. It says, at that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord. What was Joshua and Israel's great mistake in chapter 9, the one that led to them being deceived by the people of Gibeon and misled? It says in chapter 9, verse 14, that they did not ask counsel from the Lord. And because of that, they were placed in that weird situation with that strange agreement, which again, God was able to redeem and to use to bring a greater good. But Joshua avoided that mistake this time, and it says that he spoke to the Lord. And Joshua's prayer is unique here. This is something we don't see a lot. Uh, He said there in verse 12, that the sun should stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ijalon. Verse 13, the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. And so we see God perform another miracle right on the tail of that hailstorm that wiped out much of the remaining army. That the people of Israel are still chasing them down. They're still trying to finish off what's left of this group. And Joshua prays that the sun and the moon would stand still. Uh, the two places he refers to, Gibeon and the valley of Ijalon, uh, they're separated by some ways here. And so looking at uh, kind of the positioning of the sun and the moon, the time of year that uh, this probably happened and all that, um, he's basically saying that both of them would stop in their tracks in separate places kind of aligned above these two landmarks. And it said that it stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. That God created an extension of this day in some manner so that the people of Israel could finish this great victory that they were in the midst of having. That God heeded Joshua's prayer and altered in some way the passage of time in order to give this final victory over these particular groups to the nation of Israel. Uh, We don't know exactly what that looked like, if that meant that somehow the world stopped turning for a while, that God maybe slowed it down for a period of time. Whatever it may have been, it was a pretty dramatic event, something that would have unmistakably been credited back to God, that no one could do this but the God of Israel. In verse 13, it says, Is this not written in the book of Jashar? So this is uh, some sort of extra-biblical resource we see referred to at least one other time in Scripture. In 2 Samuel chapter 1, uh, we see it also referenced. Uh, the name Jashar, Jasher, uh, means upright or righteous. And so a lot of people believe that this was a book that was kind of 
an account, a retelling of some of the great victories and warriors of the people of Israel, uh, those who followed God and honored him. Uh, We don't know what else was in there. That book has been lost to history. Uh, But we see uh, this quotation from this book kind of telling us the same thing, recapping what had happened, that the sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. And we see in these verses here, we're reminded of the power of prayer, the power of interceding with God and seeking his favor and his action. James chapter 5 tells us that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. It refers to Elijah, says he was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So much like Joshua, Elijah prayed for divine intervention in order that God might be glorified, that God's name would be known as holy. And Joshua did the same thing, that he prayed for divine intervention, that God would grant this victory over his enemies, that he might be glorified. And so often in life, we're faced with different challenges, with difficulties, with hardships that come our way. And usually we're quick to consider what it is that we can do to deal with these issues, how it is that we can solve the problems, who might be able to help us, what needs to change. But it's easy to forget in these times to seek God. And when we seek God, sometimes it's easy to forget how powerful and how mighty he is, that God is able to do all things, that he has power over everything that is. And that he is able to alter even the passage of time in order to aid his people and to bring glory to himself. Uh, This verse also tells us that there has not been a day like it before or since, at least when this was written, where God did something this way. So we probably shouldn't expect God to do such a dramatic altering of the passage of time of the the rotation of the earth, things like that. But we know that God is more than capable of it. And so we can trust him to do powerful things when we pray. Let's never forget how important, how powerful prayer is in seeking our Lord. It's interesting too, as we think about the significance of this, that God altered the passage of time in these verses. Uh, We know that God created time, that God exists outside of time, and as illustrated quite graphically here, God has power over time, that God can change all of these things as he wills. Um, For myself, I'm in a, a stage of life, I have two fairly young kids, I oftentimes find myself wishing for more hours in a day. If there was more time that I could sleep a little longer and have more time to get things done, to deal with all the things that have to be done at home, to wash the dishes, to 
do car maintenance, to um, you know, take care of all this stuff and still work and be with my kids and sleep. Just a few extra hours a day seems like that would make that so much easier. But we know that God created time the way he did on purpose. That God gave us seven days in a week, 24 hours a day, for our limited 80-year lifespan, whatever it may be, on purpose. That, that was not on accident. It was not by mistake that God did this. And there's certain very isolated incidents where God can alter that, such as this passage. But I think it's important for us in these moments to realize that God has given us a limited amount of time in this lifetime for a reason. Psalm 90 verse 12 says to teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. And the fact that we have that limited time each day, each year, each lifetime, I think really helps make that time more precious and more valuable to us. That we're able to see each day differently, knowing that we will never be able to get that back. That it's the only one that we will have. Uh, I listen to music a lot when I'm preparing for sermons, when I'm studying. I get easily distracted, and so I try to put my headphones on and try to tune out everything else going on back there in the office, which is pretty busy most of the week, actually. Um, it's cool to see the amount of ministry that happens there um, during the week, not just on Sundays. But uh, a lot of the time when I'm doing this, I, I listen to instrumental music, something that's not going to you know, take my brain off in another direction, distract me further. Um, but today, I was... Uh, listening to one of my favorite bands. Um, but uh, I was familiar with uh, this one growing up, Switchfoot, for those of you who, who have heard of this. Um, but they have a, a song, the chorus says, life is short, I want to live it well. Every time I hear that song, it reminds me that time is precious, that we only have so much, and we have to make the most of the time God has given us, of the relationships he's given us, and of the opportunities he has given us to live for his glory, that we have one lifetime, and we want to live it the best we can for the greatest purpose we can, for the glory of our Savior. Verse 16 says, these five kings, the ones who had gathered together to oppose Israel and the Gibeonites, these five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave at Makeda. And it was told to Joshua, the five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Makeda. And Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies, attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities, for the Lord your God has given them into your hand. When Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, and when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp at Makeda. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. And so we see in these verses, God paused the sun, as we saw previously. Uh, he slowed down the passage of time so that they could have this victory. And they find the kings, the leaders of these nations, hidden 
inside a cave. They saw that they were defeated, and so they tried to get away to flee and to hide so that they wouldn't be discovered for their own safety. That they had abandoned their armies and were basically hiding out, waiting for the people of Israel to pass by. Uh, they're discovered. The men report back to Joshua what's going on. And he doesn't want to ignore this, that these are men who need to be dealt with. But he doesn't want to lose the victory they have pursuing and striking down the rest of these armies. So in verse 18, Joshua commands them to cover over the cave with, with large stones to trap these kings in the caves so that they could go and finish pursuing their armies. And then after that, they could come back and deal with the kings. And so it says in verse 20 that they had, when they had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, that there were none of the armies left. Then it says in 21 that all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp at Makeda. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. So the kings are trapped in these caves. Their armies are defeated. The army of Israel has returned back to Joshua, and they go get these kings out of the caves and deal with them. In verse 22, it says, Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so and brought those five kings out to him from the cave. The king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward Joshua struck them, and put them to death, and he hanged them on five trees. And they hung on the trees until evening. But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves. And they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remained to this very day. As for Makeda, Joshua captured it on that day and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining, and he did to the king of Makeda, just as he had done to the king of Jericho. So we see in these verses, God really bring about a great victory for the nation of Israel through the mistake and the deception of the Gibeonites, and through even these kings banding together to stand in opposition to Israel. That no victory can be assured apart from God. And victory is always assured with God. That these kings had no chance, even though they gathered all five of their cities together, because God was with the people of Israel. Uh, so the kings are brought out of the cave. In verse 25, or 24 and 25, now Joshua commands his leaders to come over and to stand, to place a foot on the neck of the different kings who were there before them. Uh, this was a symbol of how God would subdue their enemies before them. They would be able to stand in victory with complete power over their enemies because God would be with them throughout the rest of this conquest. So after this happens, uh, they execute these kings, hang their bodies on trees, it says, until evening, and then throw them back into the cave and cover it over. They were buried there. And so this was a powerful symbol 
of the power that God had and the victory that he had granted his people, that five different kings were executed here and put out on display for the world to see, that these five kings had stood in opposition to Israel and suffered a great defeat because of their opposition to God and to his people. We're also reminded as we go through this that God is a just God and that God rightly unleashes his wrath on the sinful, on those who oppose him. Romans 1.18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That these men got what they deserved. That they were leaders of sinful pagan cities. That the Canaanites were known for a lifestyle marked by sin, by idolatry, by adultery, by child sacrifice. These were all terrible, terrible things that God was justly punishing them for. And he was using the people of Israel to bring justice in this case. That God is a God of justice and God cares about sin being punished. That God has a righteous hatred of sin. And that righteous hatred of sin makes his love all the more profound. Verse 29 says, Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Makeda to Libna and fought against Libna. And the Lord gave it also and its king into the hand of Israel. And he struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it, he left none remaining in it. And he did to its king as he had done to the king of Jericho. And so we're going to see that same pattern uh, in these next several verses, uh, that the Israelites go to a city, they capture it, they defeat its leaders, and execute its people. And this is in obedience to the command God had given them, that they were not to allow the Canaanites to remain in the land, because they would lead the nation of Israel state and continue living in their abhorrent sin before God. And so we see the next, next phase of this in verse 31. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Libna to Lachish and laid siege to it and fought against it. And the Lord gave Lachish into the hand of Israel and he captured it on the second day and struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it as he had done to Libna. Then Horam king of Gezer came to help, up to help Lachish and Joshua struck him and his people until he left none remaining. Verse 34, then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Lachish to Eglon and they laid siege to it and fought against it. And they captured it on that day and struck it with the edge of the sword. And he devoted every person in it to destruction that day, as he had done to Lachish. Then Joshua and all Israel with him went up from Eglon to Hebron. And they fought against it and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword. And its king and its towns and every person in it. He left none remaining as he had done to Eglon and devoted it to destruction and every person in it. Verse 38. Then Joshua and all Israel with him turned back to Debir and fought against it. And he captured it with its king and all its towns. And they struck them with the edge of the sword and devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining, just as he had done to Hebron and to Libna and its king. So he did to Debir and to its king. Verse 40. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country and the Negeb and the lowland and the slopes and all their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. 
And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. And so we see through this the momentum the Israelites gained from this victory against these five kings that had united against them, that they were able to carry that momentum and to go out and conquer the rest of the central part of the land of Canaan, of what would become their land. Uh, so we picture Israel as you know, kind of a, a long, narrow strip of land. And Joshua and the Israelites had just come in one side and gone and conquered pretty much the whole central part of the area. And so that would allow them to move up north next to conquer the remaining kings and kingdoms to the north and then go south afterwards and finish off the rest of the country. They had essentially cut the land of Canaan in two and conquered many of the key strongholds that remained in the area. And we see in these verses the obedience of Joshua and of the people of Israel. Uh, that's our theme for the book of Joshua, is victory through obedience. We've seen the Israelites fail and struggle and face hardships and difficulties when they don't obey God. And we see in this chapter, they obey God to the letter, that they seek God's counsel on his favor, that they seek even his miraculous aid, and God grants them victory. We see them continue to obey God as they go and conquer one by one all these different cities. They've taken all the key fortified cities in the central part of Canaan. And they obey God, kill their rulers, execute the people as a tool for God's justice in this area and in order to remain holy and set apart from these sinful people. That they trusted God they walked in obedience and they acted on the faith that they had in the God that they were serving. Verse 42 is so key here, I think. It says, And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. So we see God fight for Israel by causing confusion among their enemies. We see God fight for Israel by altering the passage of time. We see God fight for Israel by bringing a hailstorm that killed off many of their enemies. And we see God grant his people victory after victory after victory because he is fighting on their behalf. That God is the cause of all the success. There's no way they could attribute this to anything other than God. That God fights for his people and God brings victory. And so as we wrap things up, uh, normally at the close of one of the Old Testament sermons, I like to try to tie it back into something from the New Testament. Um, We've got a few different New Testament references in there, but I think uh, this passage out of Isaiah really illustrates, I think, so much and so powerfully what we've been talking about. Um, so Isaiah chapter 59, um, this is prophecy speaking of what God will do to bring sinful people back into right relationship with him. 
So Isaiah 59, I'm going to read a few verses before what's up on the screen there. It says, Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from their transgression, declares the Lord. And I love this passage because it talks about what it is that God does for his people. What it is that God does for us who have put our faith and our trust and our hope in him. That God saw that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man to carry out. And so God stepped into the world, that he brought salvation by his own hand, that he dressed himself in armor and came and fought on behalf of his people to bring them salvation. And much like the people of Israel, we face different battles, not physical battles, but spiritual battles mental battles, the different obstacles that come before all of us as we go through life in a fallen world. And we think about what our greatest struggles are in life, Uh, that we have doubts, that we have fears, that we struggle to walk in obedience day to day. But in these moments when things are difficult, we can trust that God is with us That as he fought for the people of Israel, God will fight for us. In the middle of whatever it is that we're dealing with, we can take heart knowing that God is with us, that God is fighting for us, and that God has already won the great victory over sin and over death. That we can rest in that, knowing that that is the God we serve, and that he has promised to be with us. Let's go to him in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. I thank you for your love, God. I thank you for the message you bring us in the book of Joshua, Lord, uh, that you fight for your people, Lord. I thank you um, that you have already defeated sin and death, God, Uh, that you have purchased our redemption with your blood, that we might be brought back to you and live lives of holiness for your glory. I pray that you would give us hope in those times of struggle, Lord, that you'd help us to remember uh, that you are with us and that no one can stand against us because of that. I pray that um, you would help us to just trust in you, to trust in your power, Lord, and continually seek you through all the ups and downs that come with living in a fallen world, Lord. I pray that you might be glorified. We ask all these things in your son's name.